Father, we do ask that you would speak your words into the hearts of all of our married folks, that we would learn how to be wise in marriage. We also pray for those, Lord, who are pursuing marriage or open to marriage, that they would also be able to hear what your heart is for them to walk in wisdom in marriage in the days to come. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this guy, and this guy was always telling his wife, you know, that women speak, you know, talk a whole lot more than men do. And she said, you can't prove that. Finally, he found a study that actually proved it. The study showed that, that he said, here, look at this. A man speaks on average 15,000 words a day, and a woman speaks on average 30,000 words a day. There, there you go. Well, his wife kind of pondered that for a second. And she said, and you know why? Because we have to keep repeating ourselves. And then the man kind of seemed stunned and said, what? Well, today we're going to talk about how we can have a wise marriage. Really, we've been doing this series on God's wisdom for navigating 2021 and beyond. And today on Valentine's Day, we're going to talk about God's wisdom for navigating marriage. In fact, we're going to see in the book of Proverbs that there are five key elements to having a wise marriage, to being married in a skillful way. And we're going to walk through these five, and each one of them will help you. Those of you who are married will help you, but also those of you who are open to be married, you need to learn these elements as well. So let's look at them. The first one we're going to see, the first element for having a wise marriage is covenant. Covenant. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And notice where the word covenant in this passage. Proverbs 2, 16 says, To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress, who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God. I mean, adultery is serious business because it is a violation of the covenant. See, marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant. And there are vows that all you married folks out there, you made vows before God on your wedding day. See, a wedding is not so much a claim. At your, on your wedding day, you're not so much claiming your present love as you are promising future love. And that vow that we make really kind of takes us through those ups and downs and through those rocky times because we vowed to stay together. Now, those who view marriage not as a covenant But as a contract, they say, you know, I mean, those who view it as a contract say things like, as long as you keep your end of the deal, your end of the contract, I'll keep my end of the deal. But if you break your end, then then I don't have to keep my end. But those who rightly understand biblically that marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant, they say that no matter what you do, I'm committed to being there for you. See, understanding this, that marriage is a covenant, not a contract, is that you understand that it means 
This marriage is matters to us, not just to me. So it matters. When you got married, you did more than promise. Every one of us, think about your wedding day. We made more than promises. We made vows before God. That means that we made a commitment before God that we're going to stay true to our spouse through our entire marriage. It's a radical thing to make a vow before God. Now, I want to remind all of you who are married today that you made a vow. And I challenge you, keep your vows. Keep the vows that you made. One of my favorite, uh, really, quotes in this regard comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a sermon that he never got to preach when he was in prison, Tego Prison Cell 92, held there by the Nazi Germany. But he was going to preach the wedding service of his niece and one of his friends. And though he didn't get to preach it, they did discover the actual written wedding ceremony he was going to preach. And there's a statement in there that's so powerful. Here's what he says. Here's what he would have said at the wedding. He says, Today you are young and very much in love. And so you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't. But your marriage can sustain your love. Those of you who made vows, keep your vows. That's where it starts. It starts with having that foundation of covenantal love. If we're going to have a wise marriage, we, we understand that we made vows and we keep them. Now, those of you who are single and hope to be married one day need to understand also that you got to be ready and willing to enter into a covenant, not a contract. And be ready to not just make those vows, but be committed to keeping those. So that's the first element. And this is where, this is foundational, is that we enter this marriage relationship in the sense that we have made a vow before God as a covenant. And that foundation of commitment will carry us through so many things. But also so much is going to really flourish because of that. And we're going to talk about some other elements. The second element that's key to having a wise marriage is romance. Romance. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. The point here is simply this. Your spouse is supposed to also be your lover. Now, this is really significant. What we just read here, written in the book of Proverbs and, and, you know, thousands of years ago, because in ancient societies, the purpose of marriage was to gain security and, stat, and status for your family. That was the whole purpose of it. You married the person who would help your family status the most. That's what you did. And because of that, that meant that the husband oftentimes would look elsewhere for any type of sexual pleasure. But here the Bible says your spouse is to be your lover. So the husband's supposed to be intoxicated with his wife's love. And by the way, this is only going to 
happen if there's a real, uh, there's a solid covenantal love foundation. Because we're talking about more than sex here. We're talking about romance. We're talking about something so much more profound than just physical sex. And when you have this covenantal bond where you have st- stuck through thick and thin and you have you know, forgiven each other, worked through things and trusted each other, you have this ability when you have gone through all kinds of, of, of wrongdoing and forgiveness and you've got this deep, deep intimacy that can grow and really produce romance. But he says here, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, why does God's word use that phrase? And he uses it more than one time, the wife of your youth. I think he's trying to point out to each of us, men and women, that we, the person that we married, are married to today is a person that we actually fell in love with a long time ago. The wife of your youth or the husband of your youth. And maybe a lot of time has gone by. Maybe, you know, there's been a lot of different circumstances and good and bad experiences. But... I think he wants us to think past all that and remember that you're married to that one that you fell in love with a long time ago. The wife of your youth. I think he wants us to go back and think about those feelings we had at first when we first fell in love. I think you want, in fact, go back for a moment and think about the first time you laid eyes on the one that you'd married. Think about that moment. Think about the first time you kissed, the first time you looked in each other's eyes and said, I love you. I think he wants to take us back to those feelings. He wants us to rekindle the romance of our relationship. Now, I think we could probably have a, a line of guys get up here and tell all kinds of, you know, stories about how creative they were at one time and romantic they were. But I think all of us guys got to ask ourselves a question, but what have I done lately? What have I done lately that's been romantic and creative? Well, I think God's trying to spur that thinking by calling our spouse, really the spouse of our youth. He wants to take us back to those feelings. Now, that's important because there's something I want you guys to look at for just a moment, guys and gals. There's a passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, where Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus. And he makes a real interesting statement to these believers. He says this, Revelation 2, verse 4. He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, of course, he's talking about their relationship to him. That's what he's talking about. They left that. They left that, you know, love experience that they had with him at first, where they were just in love with Jesus They wanted to walk with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, nearness to Jesus, communion with Jesus. And he's saying, you left that. You left that first love when it was fresh and it was new. You left it. Then he says this, Revelation 2, 5, next verse. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Again, of course, he's calling them. To remember, repent, and redo. He's saying, remember what it was like back then at first when you walked with me and knew me. Remember and repent. Repent from the things that have kind of gotten away of that. And then redo it. Get back to that. That simplicity of loving Jesus. But I want you to think about that same type of experience regarding 
the person that you married. Think about a spouse of your youth. And some of you have lost your first love with him or with her. And I think you can apply this same, you know, strategy of rekindling the romance, what Jesus gives us. And that is, you know, first of all, remember. Remember what it was like. Remember how it was at first with them. Remember. And then repent. Repent from those stored up grievances that got in the way. Repent from a schedule that caused you to get far away from each other. Repent from whatever it was. Remember, repent, and then redo. Go back and do the things you did at first. Go back to being creative and romantic with the wife or the husband of your youth. So here's my first challenge I want to give uh, to our married couples, to all of you. First challenge I want to give you is I want to challenge you, you know, right after this message is over, to plan your next date. To sit down and say, okay, what is our next date? And make it a fun, creative, romantic date. And I also want to challenge you singles to plan your next date. Initiate. Okay, so that's the first two. First is covenant. That's crucial. That you made vows before God. Keep those vows. You made a covenant, not a contract. No matter if your spouse keeps their end or not, you keep yours. Covenant. Second, romance. Remember, repent, and redo. Remember the wife or the husband of your youth. And rekindle the romance. Okay, the third thing. The third thing that really a wise marriage has is friendship. Friendship. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, a passage we already looked at, but I want you to notice something that I kind of went over pretty quick. It says, uh, Proverbs two sixteen to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress, who flatters with her words, listen to this, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. That word companion, I want you to just notice if you would. Because that word companion here means the closest of friends. In fact, that same Hebrew word is used two other places in the book of Proverbs where it's actually translated intimate friend. Here it's translated companion, but it's also translated intimate friend. Best of friends. Now, again, I want you to think about this. In the time of the writing of the book of Proverbs in Solomon's day, women were mainly seen as possessions. And here so far we've seen that men are to see their wives as their exclusive lovers and their best friends. This is a radical thing in that time. But this is the word of God. The word of God, you know, his wisdom is for us to see our spouse as our lover and our very best friend. All the marks of a deep friendship should be in a marriage, if it's a wise marriage. Consistency, sensitivity, being able to speak the truth and love to one another, counseling one another. There should be a, the best of friendship in a wise, wise marriage. So God wants you to know that the person that you're married to, he, his plan for you is that she or he would be your best friend. And some of you are thinking, well, we're far from now. But that's God, that's what a wise marriage pursues. A wise marriage pursues that you can become best friends. You say, but we're so different. We are so different. There's no way. Yes, there is, even if you're that different. We're, every husband and wife are so different. 
And again, I've referred to this before, but it's one of my favorite titles of a book. There's a book called Why Men Can Only Do One Thing at a Time and and Why Women Never Stop Talking. And here's, there's, a certain, uh, there's a certain quote in here because I want to emphasize the differences between men and women. Here's the quote in this book. It goes like this. It says, brain scans test... Brain, I'm sorry, brain scan tests show that when a man's brain is at resting state, at least 70% of his electrical activity is shut down. Scans of a woman's brain shows a level of 90% activity during the same state, confirming that women are constantly receiving and analyzing information from their environment. A woman knows her children's friends, their hopes, their dreams, romances, secret fears, what they're thinking, how they're feeling, and usually what mischief they are plotting. Men, however, are just vaguely aware that there are some short people who happen to live in the same house. See, men and women are very different, and this is funny to to hear this, but the truth is, yes, we're different, but God still wants us to be the best of friends. That's his intention. So he wants... The person that you're married to, he wants that person to become your best friend. So let me ask you guys now and gals this question. How are you guys doing in friendship in your marriage? Where would you, where would you put your spouse on that you know, kind of rating of friendship? Are you pursuing becoming best friends? And you say, well, no, I don't, how do we do that? Well, let me give you one way that you can do that. We all can do that. Remember, the Bible says that that when we're married, the two become one flesh. There's something significant about this. We're still walking around in two bodies, but we have become one in a very significant way. What does that mean? That means that there's no longer any win-lose situations. You either win-win or lose-lose. If your spouse loses, you lose. If you want to win, they got to win. And that is really key to develop in a, a, a friendship that it really is... It, becomes best friends, is you're constantly trying to make sure they win. What happens is you become each other's biggest fans. And that's why you also become each other's best friends. Win-win. The only other option is lose-lose. So always make sure your spouse wins. So let me give you another challenge here. Challenge number two, determine together one way, one way that you can strengthen your friendship. One way in your marriage you can strengthen your friendship. Real practical way. Talk about it. But also, I want to talk to you singles for a second. When you're thinking about who you might marry, and you become interested in someone, focus on developing a deep friendship with them. Make that the first priority in your relationship. Become good friends. Okay, so let's go to the fourth element of a wise marriage. The fourth element is partnership. Partnership. And there's a couple of Proverbs I want to read, and I want you to think about why I'm using these Proverbs when I'm trying to point out that a husband and wife are partners. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are graceful, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Proverbs 6.20, My son, observe the commandments of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. See, I want you to notice that in the book of Proverbs, we see that both the father and the mother were teaching 
their sons, their son wisdom. So the mother is an authoritative voice right alongside the father in the family life. Together they are partners. They're true partners, of course, in teaching their children, but they're true partners in the house in many ways. In fact, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1 says this, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. So the wise woman builds her house. And he's obviously not talking about the physical structure of the house. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the foundations of the family life, socially, economically, materially, emotionally, spiritually. In fact, the wife in Proverbs 31 We see that she's an administrator, a broker, a philanthropist, a craftswoman. And again, these aren't absolute templates for a husband and wife. But what we do see here is that they both contributed together as partners in the the home. And so God's intention in a wise marriage is that we function as partners. Marriage is a partnership in every way. Now, the Bible is clear that the husband is to be the head of the home. But every wise husband knows that his wife is to be his teammate, his partner in the home and in the marriage. So again, now, if you're married, let me ask you this, and you should talk about this. Are you functioning as partners? And in what ways could you better function as partners? This is a good conversation to have between husband and wife. How can you better function as partners, as a team? That's how a wise marriage functions. And those of you that are single, I would challenge you that as you, know, as you are pursuing a relationship, I think you should make it up front that you're expecting one day, if this goes further, that you would be teammates, that you'd be partners. All right, let's look at the fifth element. The fifth element of a wise marriage is grace, that a husband and wife are gracious, are gracious to each other. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, and she who shames him is as rottenness in his bones. That first phrase I want us to look at, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. To crown someone is to lift them up and to honor them. That's the idea. So a spouse that is a, you know, is a crown of, uh, to, their, to their spouse is one who is lifting them up, is honoring them, is building them up. And again, there's something that uh, is just crucial. In a wise marriage, you are constantly building each other up, not tearing each other down. Timothy Keller Raleigh points out that, you know, your natural self-image is a compilation of all these verdicts that have been passed on to you in your life by various people, you know, Parents, teachers, coaches, classmates. But what's really amazing is that when you marry, your spouse has the ability to overturn all of those verdicts. See, if you've been told by other people you're ugly, but your spouse tells you you're beautiful, then you feel beautiful. It's amazing the power that we have in a marriage relationship to build each other up. And that's really what a wise marriage does. It focuses on looking for ways to build each other up, to be each other's biggest fan, to cheer each other on. A wise marriage builds each other up. A foolish marriage is constantly tearing each other down. Let me tell you some of the ways that 
The book of Proverbs talks about that happening. Proverbs 21, verse 9, says, It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21, 19, It's better to live in a desert, desert land, than with a contentious and vexing woman. Now, just so you think that I'm not just picking on women here, here's another verse, but this is for men. Proverbs 26, 21, like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire is a contentious man to kindle strife. So it can be a man or a woman who is contentious. And really, the idea here is someone who is constantly nagging. Nagging, that's a constant, just little barbs, little criticisms, little sarcastic remarks, little jabs here and there. That's nagging. And really, I think the two telltale signs of nagging statements are, you always and you never. That's nagging. But a marriage is really supposed to be a place, you know, when you go home to your spouse or you get together with your spouse, it's supposed to be a haven, a safe place of rest and refreshment. Instead, when, you have, when there's nagging in a relationship, you feel like you have no safe place. There is no roof or walls around you, no real sense of home or shelter from the life storms. And so you start finding ways. Maybe you don't come home as quick. You don't want to be around it because it's not where you find rest and restoration. It's where you're going to get jabbed again and poked again and nagged again. Proverbs 19, verse 13 says, A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. That's an interesting little picture here that Solomon's given us. Constant dripping. Nagging is that. Nagging is a slow, constant dripping of these short, like unhappy barbs and arrows. And, just, and that just kind of wears you down, wears out a relationship. It's just like a, like a dripping of water just kind of rode a stone after, you know, years and years of that dripping. It just wears it down. That's what nagging does in a marriage. It wears the other person down, and they don't want to be around their spouse. But let's follow this water image a little further. Instead of dripping, how about pouring? What I mean by that is, is don't just drip a little criticism, painful criticism here or a jab there, but how about taking the time to just pour? In other words, take the time to sit down and identify the problem behavior and don't just attack the character and, and talk about how things can change and do it with love and encouragement, but take the time to pour. Poor and, and see if we can't come out both winners, you know, in this relationship and not nagging and constantly tearing each other down. We need to be gracious to one another. Another verse, Proverbs eleven sixteen: a gracious woman attains honor. You know, one of the ways that we're gracious to one another is to be quick to forgive. And this is crucial in a marriage relationship if you're going to have a wise marriage. A wise marriage is quick to forgive one another. A wise marriage resolves conflict quickly. We don't store up grievances. We don't have a, you know, a re- reservoir of resentment. We're not you know, filling up the ammunition dump for later. We, just, we, we keep a clean slate, quick to forgive. And I've shared before in, in our church family, this Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, where it says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. See, when we've got resentment, bitterness, 
We've got unforgiveness, this wrath. We actually are leaving a place in our marriage for the devil. And the word devil means one who separates. And people wonder why the smallest thing can cause a big fight in their marriage. And the reason is because the devil's there. You gave him a place. The one who separates is in your house. And all you got to do to get him out is to forgive each other. And his place is taken away. You can't get him out by rebuking him out or praying him out. The only way to get him out is to take away his place that you gave him by forgiving each other. It is so crucial if you're going to have a marriage that really is a wise marriage, be quick to forgive. And some of you, before this day is over, the, biggest, the best thing you could do is take about an hour to just go seek the Lord and ask how you could, what you could ask the other person in your marriage to forgive you for. And just say, Lord, show me what I need to ask them to forgive me for. And then come back together and just walk through that. Will you forgive me for this? Be very specific. Other person looks in the eyes and says, I forgive you. Say the words. I tell you what, if you develop, a, you, know, you know, kind of get, first of all, get all the backlog done, you know, that reservoir resentment, you got to empty that out. No more ammunition dump, no weapons, just total forgiveness, and then keep a clean slate. And keep being quick to forgive. That's what a wise marriage does, because a wise, wise marriage is gracious. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I mean, if we really have a wise marriage, it's going to be a marriage of love that just, does, just keeps bearing with each other graciously and forgiving each other. So here it is. If you're married, here's the challenge for you. Sit down and, and talk to your spouse. Is there anything that we need to walk through and forgive each other for? And, and accomplish that. And be quick to forgive. And if you're not married but like to be one day, I encourage you in your friendships, learn now to be quick to forgive. If you're not quick to forgive in your relationships now, you're probably not going to be quick to forgive when you get married. It's even a lot closer quarters, so it's going to be even harder for you. Now is the time to learn to be quick to forgive and to be gracious. Now, in closing, there's a, there's a psychologist by the name of John Gottland that he wrote something that I think is one of the most helpful things that I've ever read about having a wise marriage. And what he really does, whether he knows it or not, is he pulls from the book of Proverbs because, because he and a team he has a team of people that they, they actually specialized in in, in, in marriage and divorce. And they identified four critical variables that the health and the future of a marriage hinges on. And what they discovered is that if, that if a marriage has all four of these variables, these marriage busters, then they're not going to make it. In fact, they found out with 90% accuracy, if a marriage has these four variables, they won't make it. 90% accuracy. And so I want to walk through these because really he's, he's, he's drawing from the truth of the book of Proverbs. And I want you to just kind of evaluate your marriage and see, and ask the question, do we have any of these variables in our marriage? So let's look through. I'm going to call them marriage busters. And after each buster, I'm going to mention what the opposite is, the marriage builder. The first marriage buster that Gotland mentions, and we've also already seen the book of Proverbs, marriage buster number one is contempt. Contempt. When couples treat one another with contempt, they're headed for serious trouble. That's what they found. 
Contempt is an expression of devaluing. It says things like, I've judged you, I reject you. It can be expressed with just a look, just a look of contempt. It can be expressed with just a rolling of the eyes, a tone of voice that says, basically, you're primarily an irritant to me. That's contempt. It involves verbal put-downs and a refusal to listen. And also, those deliberate jabs and infliction of pain, that's contempt. And what they discovered is that is one marriage buster you got to make sure you don't have. If you do have it, you got to be quick to get it out of your marriage. Now, the opposite of this marriage buster, the marriage builder, would be honor. To honor one another. To look for ways to... In fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, make it a contest. I mean, when you, when you begin to think in terms of win-win, it becomes fun being married. When you're constantly looking at ways to outdo one another in showing honor, marriage is a blast. And that is how you build a marriage, and that is a wise marriage. So avoid marriage buster number one, contempt with the opposite, by showing honor. All right, marriage buster number two that the researchers discovered causes marriage to fail, marriages to fail with 90% accuracy. Marriage buster number two is criticism, a chronic spirit of negative criticism. Now, if this is prominent uh, in your life when you have a disagreement in your marriage, instead of problem-solving the problem, it's easy for you to shift gears into, you know, just focus on the character of your spouse and begin to, you know, criticize their character or their flaws. And you magnify and frequently comment on their negative traits. And, and, and in the opposite of that, of course, is you minimize or rarely acknowledge your positive traits. So sarcasm becomes part of the relationship. It's ingrained in, as a habit. In fact, you, you know, you can't even make a simple request without some sarcasm. For example, you say something like, would you mind getting off your self-centered, lazy backside and stop watching TV for just a moment and help your fatherless son do his homework? That's not how you speak to one another. That's not a good way of putting it. Now, the counterpart to this constant criticism is, of course, encouragement. Encourage one another daily. Look for ways to point out the good things in each other and, and build each other up. That's how you have a wise marriage. Again, Gotland and his team, they're pulling from what we just looked at in the book of Proverbs without even knowing it. Let me give you the third thing they discovered that causes marriages up to 90% you know, of the accuracy to fail. Marriage buster number three is this, defensiveness. Marriage buster number three is defensiveness. In other words, when there's a problem, there's a difficulty, you're quick to get defensive. You know, you're, you're quick to say, no, it's your fault. And you're always trying to find out how to make it their fault. Even if it was this much your fault and this much their fault, you just want to, you know, focus on their fault. Now, the opposite of that is a spirit of oneness. So the opposite of being defensive is focusing on how, again, to win, win. How to focus on connectedness. And oneness, realizing you guys are in this together. If they lose, you lose. So why would you tear them down? 
Why would you criticize? Because if they lose, you lose. You're one flesh. So begin to, you know, be wise and make sure they win. They got to win. And that means that you begin to look for ways to function together with oneness and encouragement. All right, last one. Now, this is last one is a big one. Okay, last one. The final marriage buster, number four, is withdrawal. Withdrawal. When you just withdraw, withdraw in the relationship. What, what they discovered, Gotland and his, and his team, with decades of research, what they discovered was that fighting and anger in and of themselves are not predictors of divorce. They found out that you could have fighting and anger in a very bad marriage, and there's fighting and anger in some very good marriages. So they concluded that that was not, you know, a slam dunk on whether or not the marriage is going to fail. You could have fighting and you could have anger. But what they saw was that when you begin to choose to withdraw from one another, they saw that as really the key to the end of a marriage. The truth is most marriages end with a whimper, not a bang. People just start to check out. And over time, they, they just, slow, just slowly withdraw and just kind of drift away from each other. They may be still living in the same house. They might even still be roommates. But now they begin to find their emotional needs met somewhere else, and they become increasingly detached from one another. You know, they sometimes use withdrawal as, withdrawal as a form of punishment. In other words, you don't give me what I want. You can't be the way I want you to be. So I'm going to withdraw my affection from you. I'm going to even withdraw my presence from you. I just don't even want to be around you. Now, that, if you're in that stage in your marriage today, I urge you, get help right away. You are in a very dangerous place, and you're not going to stay there very long without this thing going to divorce. Let us help you. Let some of our pastors and elders help you. Let us meet with you, pray with you. This is a dangerous place to be. Now, the counterpart of that, the opposite, the marriage builder is really spirit of unity and, again, connectedness. And that, again, is where this, this whole thing of saying, you know, i got to make sure they win, and I want to be together, and I want to be partners, and I want to be friends, and I want to be lovers. And your goal is to get that back, to rekindle that romance. You know, wise marriages pursue unity and connectedness by what? By realizing that you have a covenant relationship. You made vows. Keep your vows. By pursuing romance with the spouse of your youth. Remember what they were like when you fell in love with them. Remember, repent from what separated you and begin to redo again what you did at first. Also, by developing close friendship with your spouse. Become best friends. Make that your goal. And by being partners, look for ways. How can we, where are we not functioning as a team? And how can we begin to function as a team? And by extending grace to one another, being quick to forgive. That's how to have a wise marriage. And no matter where your marriage is right now, you can turn it around. Those of you that have good marriages, I hope your goal is to make it a great marriage. Those of you that have trouble marriages, don't give up on it. You can turn it around. We can help you. Those of you who just aren't married but like to be one day, learn these principles now. And in your relationship, begin to develop these. And they'll help you with a good foundation for a future marriage. Now, I'd like to close in prayer by really praying for our marriages. 
and also for our singles. And so I just want to pray for you now, right now. Father, you know every marriage that's, that's viewing this. Lord, I pray that you would cause those key things that, they, that, you, that you spoke to them to really, really kind of take root in their heart. And you begin to bring healing and restoration, refreshment. You rekindle, Lord, romance. You cause our marriages at Grace Community Church to be strengthened. Lord, I pray for those who are really in a bad place, Lord. I pray for you, just your hand to come upon these marriages. I, I pray, Lord, you save them. You save them, Lord, because there's so much at stake, so much more than anyone, than they know and anyone else knows. Lord, would you save them? Lord, we pray for our singles, Lord, that you'd prepare them to be married to that person that you're going to lead them to and intersect them with. And you'd cause them to be able to really develop a Christian marriage that would bring you much honor and glory. So, Lord, on this Valentine's Day, Lord, we just pray that you would bless the marriages and the future marriages of Grace Community Church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.